From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. One of the things that Democrats have to offer is this sense of creating fellowship and reestablishing the threads that unite us rather than figuring out which ones divide us. You don't need a genius to identify things that divide us. You need a leader who can identify the things that remind us of our fellowship. That's Rahm Emanuel. He's had a storied career in public service as a staffer to President Bill Clinton, as a congressman from Illinois who chaired the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the House Democratic Caucus, before leaving Congress to serve as President Obama's first chief of staff. Then in 2011, Emanuel was elected the mayor of Chicago and served for two terms before leaving office in 2019. He joins me to talk about his new book, The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. We taped this conversation last week before a more significant response from federal and state governments to the rapidly evolving coronavirus threat, but Emmanuel's focus on local public servants as our country's new leaders resonates powerfully in this moment. We talk about whether good presidents are ruthless and if any of our public figures today have this quality, why Democrats have an aversion to power, and how to rise above this president's efforts to stoke division across the country. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, stay tuned, listeners. If you haven't heard already, on Tuesday, we taped a special episode of the Cafe Insider podcast all about the coronavirus. Usually each week, former New Jersey AG Ann Milgram joins me to talk about the latest political news. But this week, we were joined by a special guest, Lisa Monaco, former Homeland Security Advisor to President Obama and current member of Vice President Joe Biden's Public Health Advisory Committee, who joined us to break down all the important issues raised by the pandemic. Normally, we sample a portion of our conversation, but this week, given the urgency of the news, we're making the full conversation free. Just head to cafe.com slash preet to sign up to receive the full episode if you don't already receive our emails. If you already receive emails from Cafe, this should be in your inbox. Otherwise, to listen to the full episode for free, head to cafe.com slash preet. Hey, listeners, instead of our usual start to the show, where I answer your questions, we have a special guest to answer all of my and your questions about the coronavirus, Ian Bremmer. He's the president and founder of the political risk consulting firm Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. He's also the host of the podcast G Zero World with Ian Bremmer. And most importantly, he's been on the Stay Tuned podcast before to talk about global risks last year and in January. And with that, Ian, Thank you for joining me this morning, Wednesday, March 18th, to discuss the latest news. Preet, I've missed you so. <laughs> I've, I've missed you also, especially in these very troubling times. So I want to let the listeners know that a week ago, I got a direct message from you, and it was one line, and it was just, okay, I'm worried now. <laughs> and you know, you're the only person I sent that to. I swear to God, that is that is the case. I got to say, Ian, when when you send me a text saying you're worried now, that actually makes me worried. So I'm glad you're here to talk about the consequences of the coronavirus, the response, and all sorts of other things. You'll recall that you were on the show pretty recently at the end of January talking about what your firm puts out every year, sort of a list of the top global risks in the world. And I pointed out in our interview, I said, can we talk about one thing quickly that's not in here? And you said, yeah, sure. And I said, you know, it's a thing that I've been starting to worry about because I'm one of those people who worries about dread diseases. And you said I was going to say pandemics. 
And then I said, so the coronavirus, that's very troubling to me and to my family and to a lot of folks. And can you say something about that? And you did, but it was not in your report. You think your report is in need of an update? Absolutely. Uh, and uh, it's actually coming out today. It's the first time since we started the firm in 98 that we've ever done an a, a intra-year top risks report. And you know, you'll remember what I said about the pandemic was that it was reflected in the fact that there was so much greater likelihood of these tail risk events having a really significant impact because the politics are so dysfunctional right now. So whatever it happened to be there, you know, whether it was a massive sudden cyber attack or it was a pandemic, the fact that the politics both domestically and internationally are really not aligned makes me worry a lot more. So I, I'm still not worried about our institutions falling apart here in the United States or in Europe. And in fact, I mean, if you listen to Pence over the last couple of days, not Trump, not Trump, or watch Mnuchin and Nancy Pelosi work together, or look at all of the European Union uh, members come together in the way that they are trying to build effective economic and financial responses, you say, oh, these institutions work. But if you look at the global environment and the world order that is increasingly likely to emerge on the back of this pandemic, I really don't think we're going to like what we see. So the number one risk that you assessed in your report was the American political situation in the election. How does the coronavirus, which has just become the most important priority and issue for everyone, including at this point, late, but finally, uh, Donald Trump, how does it affect the way you think about the number one global risk in your report? Well, let's stipulate, uh, to use a legal term of art uh, for you, that this most important thing for Trump is still his reelection. Um, and so as a consequence, he's prepared to do pretty much anything to ensure that he's still president after January. That being the case, he now has a real problem. And while it's not reflecting in his numbers yet, it's going to, right? I mean, this is a massive economic hit. Uh, you've got you know American officials saying that you could have 20% unemployment if you don't get really extraordinary amount of stimulus in short order. We see the entire economy uh, about on the precipice of shutting down, and the markets taking you know bigger hits than any time since 1987 day to day. This is for a president who was running in large part on the extraordinary successes of the American economy, some overstated, some real. So the likelihood that he's able to win re-election has gone down significantly. Uh, he's going to take action in that regard. And I think that action is going to include politicizing uh, investigations around soon-to-be Democratic nominee Joe Biden. It's going to be around talk of whether you can hold primaries effectively or even the election effectively, given difficulties of people traveling to polling places, the ability to disenfranchise targeted voters in swing states by changing the way that the election is conducted when people can't 
physically get to those places easily. So you're saying he's gonna, he's going to play even dirtier than he has before? Absolutely. I think there's no there's no question of that. And to be fair, I mean, you know, it's also more plausible that we get a true blowout against Trump. But given the demographics in this country, I still think the likely outcome of the election is going to be fairly close and therefore vulnerable to a sense that it's going to be rigged. And I think that given what's going to happen in this, this country, given what we're about to experience over the next several months, it is clear that coronavirus and the response is going to be the single biggest issue in the upcoming election. And even though Trump did have success in closing down travel from China early, and he took a hit from the Chinese government on that, on almost every other front, the response from the U.S. administration has been seriously underwhelming. And, and I think that's a problem for him. And so you don't think there's a possibility of the coronavirus hitting its peak in, as the governor of New York says, 45 days, things recede, we get control of it, the markets bounce back. And by the time we get to the election on November 3rd, all of this is in the rearview mirror. You don't think that's that's a possibility? I think that's unlikely. I think the amount of control that the U.S. government is going to need to put in place is not going to be it's not going to be accomplishable at a consistent national level. You'll see hardline responses in certain states and certain cities. You won't in other places. I think that is a really big deal. And so as a consequence, I mean, in other words, I don't, I think it's implausible to imagine you see a China or even a South Korea type response in the United States and given the infectiousness and seriousness, severity of this disease, that implies that 45 days just doesn't get you there. And, and the modeling that we're now seeing that the federal government is getting certainly implies more of a U as opposed to a V. Why do you think, given that Trump cares so much about re-election, and I agree with that, why was he so late to take this seriously? I mean, you know, going back to our interview, in literally the same time frame that you and I were talking about the coronavirus and how serious it was and what a looming crisis there might be, he was calling it a hoax and saying it's not a big deal, even though he's now pretending that he, I think he said this week. This is a pandemic. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. All you had to do is look at other countries. I think now it's in almost 120 countries all over the world. Uh, no, I've always viewed it as very serious. There was no difference yesterday from days before. Why was he so slow on this? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, he's, so he's a little bit like Mohammed bin Salman in this way, right? Which is- He's like MBS? Yeah, in the sense that he's always believing the most positive, plausible interpretation of anything, especially when it involves numbers. And, you know, he, he's a natural exaggerator, advertiser, showman, brander, and, you know, it, take that personality- and, and in order to be effective at that, you have to be able to believe a fair amount of it yourself, really internalize it, and, and add to that um, the fact that he doesn't really like or internalize expertise, and he has a limited attention span. That means that when people were coming to him with bad news, they were sugarcoating it. They first had to say what a great job he was doing and how, of course, everything was fine, and then try to sneak in, you know, sort of a, some modulation into that message which of course was 
that's already a process which is going to make it harder for him to be willing to accept. And, and he's not aligned internally to accepting it. So, you know, when you put the, all of those things together, it makes it really hard to get Trump to try to steer the ocean liner Trump towards the direction of the uh, impending iceberg. Right. Have him recognize, hey, we've got a real serious problem here. You're, like, you're looking on the aft deck, but right in front of us is this massive disaster. And if you don't slow down um, the, the engines, um, we're going to hit it. And, and there's no question that over the course of the past two months, the willingness of President Trump to believe plausible um, scientific scenarios that were being put forward by Dr. Anthony Fauci at the National Institutes of Health, being put forward by uh, Harvard uh, Medical School, by all sorts of other studies that were being written up. And, and, and by, again, folks internal to the Trump administration, he just wasn't there. And, and Preet, that's, that's really going to cost this country. That, that and the fact that we've underinvested in our healthcare system for a long time. And again, not consistently so. So Americans think that we're the best at everything. And the fact is our healthcare system is, is actually not up to the level of other advanced industrial economies. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the, the response that you're going to see from a lot of cities and states around the country is going to be a lot harsher than you know just a month or two because I don't think our healthcare system is anywhere close to up to the measure right now to be able to respond to the kinds of people that will need intensive care um, if the, as this really spreads. I want to get to some of that capacity issue in a second, but just playing out what you're saying about Trump, and I appreciate that you also have a degree in psychology. Where did you get that degree? <laughs> <laughs> we all do. We all talk the, about the, the same place. The same place you did, Preet. I mean, this is the this is the psychological school of hard knocks you and I both exactly, grew up with. Exactly. Although, if we didn't know, recognize know that, you know people's psychology, we've got we were going to get our asses kicked by the neighborhood bullies, right? <laughs> That's actually we we don't have to talk about my bullying right now. I'm I'm. Anxious enough as it is. Could you we had to talk our way out of that. That's all Please, I'm saying. Uh, yes. No, 100%. Yes. To not get punched when I was in seventh grade, I had to have something clever to say. That's not going to get you. I guess the reason you're going to get away with not, by not being punched is because we're socially distancing. But but, <laughs> but how, what, So how do we play this out? I understand you're saying that Trump likes to see the rosiest picture when he's given a set of numbers and options. So this is not a static situation, right? So over the coming weeks and months, there are going to be additional moments, inflection points, when Donald Trump can do X or Y and is going to be getting, you know, a range of scenarios, isn't he going to keep doing that? Like, is there any reason to suppose that he's going to hunker down and do the most serious thing and take the most drastic and appropriate action going forward? Because he hasn't done that before, right? I think there's a reason to suppose um, that he's going to let Vice President Pence, who in my view has done a remarkably competent job over the last couple of weeks and all of the opportunities he's had to give press statements and to take a leadership role, Fauci, Health and Human Services, I mean, all the rest. I, I think that they will now be empowered. Again, if you look at what Mnuchin, what the, the other members of the administration have been saying, I mean, they certainly all feel empowered to take all possible measures to respond. So in other words, I think now that Trump recognizes that this is a true danger to his reelection and the markets are taking 
massive hits on the back of it. He needs people that actually know what they're doing to respond. But there's one issue with that, right? I'm going to go rely back again on my uh, psychology degree. He does not like other people having the limelight. And I'm sure he's seen some of the stories that echo what you just said. And you know, a lot of people who are listening to this probably don't like Mike Pence much either. But I agree with those people who have said the difference in the ability to look presidential and to communicate effectively and not to go down you know, crazy rabbit holes on the part of Mike Pence as compared to Donald Trump is really noticeable. And you know, I, I think the best thing Donald Trump could do is not go to these press conferences at all. Clearly. And, let and Pence stop tweeting. We all know that. But he can't help himself. Yep. No, and he's still, so he's still going to be a distraction. He's still going to say things that are obviously fake news. And I do think he represents a very significant risk in the response to this in a way that I can talk about in a second. But I, I think that even with Pence getting positive press and getting surely a Time Magazine cover in short order. I don't have any inside information on that. I just expect it's going to happen, and it will incense the president. And maybe for our national security, I should actually call the editor-in-chief of Time um, and tell him <laughs> not to do that. Just hold off, dude. Just hold off. But but I, I think that and if not Trump's, Fauci either, because that, that's, that right. that's right. That's right. Trump, who's, who's 79 years old, right? He's older than Bernie Sanders, and you'd never know it, right? I mean, I've already tweeted – Fauci for president 2020. I'm ready for that. But but I, I think that if Trump is going to let any of those guys go, um, he's going to wait until it looks like we're actually coming out of this thing. So may, maybe that that risks um, second order um, outbreaks in the United States. But I think as long as this is truly a disaster and we don't know how deep the rabbit hole goes, it is hard to imagine Trump wanting to get rid of someone and take the responsibility on himself, right? right? I think the danger, that, and there's a real danger here, and we've seen it just in the last couple of days, is that Trump is going to start blaming folks. And he, try, he tried to blame Obama. He's tried to blame Biden. Those things don't really pass the sniff test, but he's blaming China. And uh, I think the likelihood that we get into a very serious fight with the Chinese over this is real, and dangerous. And that, that could mean that we emerge in a very different global order than the one that we have right now. Well, that's that's kind of an astonishing thing you just said. Um, what's the basis for blaming China other than the fact that this virus originated from there? Well, it's not just that it originated from there. It's that it originated for the, from there and they lied about it. They covered it up for over a month put their people in incredible harm's way. Oh, did they, did they call it a democratic hoax too? Uh, I, I wish they called it a democratic hoax. No, they called it nothing at all. They actually uh, reprimanded the doctor uh, that tried to whistleblow on this issue, forced him to renounce his initial statement. He died, by the way, um, uh, you know, about a month, month and a half ago uh, from the virus, from exposure. And while nothing was going on officially, according to the Chinese government, millions of Chinese um, from Wuhan are traveling all over the world. And that, of course, is how we got the initial outbreaks to expand the way they did in Iran, in Italy, in the United States. So, I mean, very clearly, the proximate initial responsibility of this, this virus comes from China and comes 
in part because of the mishandling and misrepresenting of the virus by an authoritarian Chinese government. But the fact that that is all true does not in any way mean that it is useful for the Americans to point fingers at the Chinese directly right now. But it's useful politically. Exactly. People have been saying about this, unlike other battles that the, that the president has had with Biden or with Adam Schiff or with Democrats generally, that he can belittle and he can attack and he can uh, give nicknames to and he can bully. He doesn't really have that with microbes. So he has to substitute in an adversary. And you're basically saying that adversary is going to be China. That's right. And, um, and how does that play out? Well, um, not well. I mean, maybe the most important point here, Preet, is that the Chinese government feels a lot more confident today coming out of this coronavirus crisis in China as the rest of us head more deeply into it than they did following the 2008 financial crisis. Obviously, in part, that's because they have implemented a successful and unprecedented quarantine regime. It hurt their economy pretty heavily, and there's still damage to be done. But they have you know, come close to defeating the virus domestically in China, at least for now. And furthermore, China is where all of the medical, pharmaceutical um, supplies, medicines, you name it, that's where the supply chain comes from. So that production is critical for the rest of the world. And what we see the Chinese now doing is traveling all over the world and providing masks and tests and medical uh, personnel uh, in Italy, in Spain, in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, and being thanked profusely by these governments. We see Jack Ma, the wealthiest Chinese, offering 500,000 test kits and a million masks to the Americans who have been unable to produce those test kits for our own citizens thus far. I mean, after 9-11, Prince Al-Walid from Saudi Arabia offered some money post to, uh, to rebuild New York, and Giuliani told him to go scratch. This is a very different, a very different context in the U.S. So we're, we're now, our president is now referring to this as the Chinese flu, the Chinese virus, and he's doing it consistently. And the Republicans are picking it up and the media is starting to pick it up. And the Chinese government just this week um, has said that they are uh, kicking out all journalists from the New York Times, who, by the way, have been very sympathetic in their coverage of China, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, not only from mainland China, but also from Macau and Hong Kong, which goes against basic law agreement between China and Hong Kong. They don't care. So how big a deal is the kicking out of the journalists? It's a very big deal. I mean, it, it again shows that the Chinese are indifferent to agreements they have with these organizations. They are indifferent to the rules that they have set both with, with them as well as with Hong Kong, that they feel much more confident in being able to lash out against the Americans, even in the midst of this crisis, when the United States is about to experience you know, uh, certainly an economic hit as bad as 2008, maybe much, much worse. And the Chinese aren't being helpful. The Chinese aren't asking for a joint task force. They're not calling for a G20. They're instead actually escalating a confrontation with the world's largest economy. That really doesn't say good things geopolitically. 
I'm a little confused then. Is this a conflict that Trump seeks or a conflict that China is engaging in and that Trump is prepared to join for political reasons? Um, I think that Trump increasingly seeks it for the political reasons that you identified and the Chinese are absolutely prepared for it. And, and so what actions do you think Trump will take on behalf of the country to exact, you know, quote unquote, retaliation or vengeance on the Chinese? Well, let me just give you a few examples. You know, one would be that clearly the Chinese are not going to make good on the execution of all of the goods they were supposed to buy from the United States in the phase one trade deal that heretofore President Trump had been touting as really good and really important and a great deal. And Xi Jinping's a great guy and he's a strong leader. So you could easily imagine Trump blames the Chinese for that, pulls out of the deal and actually re-implements tariffs against the Chinese, blaming them for refusing to actually implement a deal that they signed. You can imagine that Chinese tourists, uh, students, no longer feeling welcome in the United States. Again, a lot of them are left because of coronavirus. But what happens if, I mean, you remember after 9-11, the way Saudis were treated, they tried to come into the United States. What would happen if Chinese Americans were treated like that by ICE officials, by Homeland Security officials? What if we see some racist acts against Chinese on the ground in the United States that are not policed well and that Trump takes a patriotic message from that. I mean, and, you know, not to mention the fact that we already have an awful lot of companies that are thinking that their supply chain in China is a just-in-time supply chain. It doesn't work very well. What they need is a just-in-case supply chain, which they don't have, right? Like if things go badly, where else might you produce from? China is potentially a problem for you. You're going to see a lot of movement. What if Trump starts saying, it is patriotic not to produce any of these things in China anymore. We must produce in the United States. You and I can both easily see Trump doing all of those things. Would he then stop production of his own items and goods in China? Well, I mean, that's the hypocrisy around the Trump organization has, has never been something usefully raised in terms of uh, are we going to see consistency and uh, how Trump treats you know, his own immigrant workers, for example, that are needed for Mar-a-Lago as opposed to everybody else's. So, I mean, we can make fun of the fact that he will not, that there will still be Trump ties that probably uh, are, are made in China. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't think that's a relevant piece of the a policy analysis that will come out of a Trump presidency. So can, can we talk about the economy, both domestically and globally? Yeah. First, in the United States, are we in a recession? Uh, we're going to be, in, if we're not in a recession right now, uh, technically speaking, uh, we will be very shortly. And yeah, I, I think we're, we're functionally in a recession right now. So you think there's no, there's no way America avoids a recession. You think that's a hundred percent, you know, 99, I mean, close to, I think that's pretty right. Is there a possibility of being in what economists call a depression? I'd be surprised, but uh, again, because I believe that the level of stimulus that we see the level of financial support from the Fed implies that we don't have a banking meltdown. Regulations put in place after 2008 also helped to facilitate that in terms of the credit that was the cash that was kept on hand uh, for these financial institutions, making them more resilient. I mean, a lot of people are going to face a lot of hardship. 
But I think that, you know, checks are going to be written to every American in relatively short order. I think that uh, big bailouts are coming for industries that have been particularly badly hurt. That doesn't mean Americans aren't going to suffer. And, uh, and a lot of them are going to suffer a lot. It'll be most obvious in terms of the healthcare system getting overwhelmed. But I, I, it's at this point, and unless the epidemiology of this disease is worse, is significantly worse than the than the scenarios that are being painted by Homeland Security and Harvard and, and others that I've seen recently, which imply, you know, could be 10 to 20 times worse in mortality than last year's flu. Uh, so a very big deal, um, then I think you can probably avoid a depression. You refer to something that you term a geopolitical recession. Yeah. What's, what's that? And are we in that? Yeah. I mean, this is the, the big problem here is that the last crises that we've had, 9-11, 2008, they've, had when the, they've happened when the geopolitical order was doing well, when we had a boom cycle. We are in a geopolitical recession. It means that the existing geopolitical order is not functioning. Um, the uh, United States is less willing to lead internationally as global sheriff as architect of global trade, as cheerleader of global values. The transatlantic relationship is much weaker. It's less aligned on key national security, economic, and technology issues. Domestically, our institutions within democratic uh, countries around the world are seen to be uh, less legitimized and more polarization exists in these countries. And then we have the Chinese expanding becoming much stronger and not aligned with our values, our political, our economic systems, building competitive architecture internationally, and the Russians in decline, but blaming us and trying to undermine our political institutions, in some cases successfully. So you put all that together, that's not the old US-led global order. It's something very different. It's a geopolitical recession. And a geopolitical recession doesn't matter that much when you're in steady state global economy. But when suddenly you have a big recession and a shock, that's when you notice the geopolitical recession. That's when you realize, oh my God, the G20 is not coming together. The G7 isn't aligned. These countries aren't working together. They're blaming each other. They're taking an every nation for itself approach. And that's when it becomes more likely that you break things and that you sow the seeds for a new global order that we may not like very much at all. That's, that's what a geopolitical recession really reflects. Coming back to the United States, you made reference to checks going out. Do you think that's effective? A check for a thousand bucks or 2000 bucks, or some people are saying even more than that to every adult means tested or not means tested. Is that, is that really going to do the trick? Well, I, I think it, it helps. I think it's part of a solution because it can be done very quickly. Um, I'm not. Can, can it be done quickly? It seems to me that as a matter of logistics, nothing on that scale happens very quickly. Talking to the banks that have you know some experience in this, I mean, certainly we're not talking months; we're talking weeks. So yeah. So you think the likelihood is that the majority of people who are listening to this podcast can expect a check from the government in the coming weeks? Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm not only the majority. I expect it'll be everyone. I think it won't be means tested because that would actually slow it down. And the amount of people that get those additional checks that don't need them, the it's it's kind of a drop in the bucket as opposed yeah. to what Cause I know, want to do. Because I, I know somebody who doesn't need that check and his yeah. name is Ian Bremer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, great. I mean, you and I can, we will do something. I'm sure you and I will do something constructive. If you want, we can announce it publicly together. That's yeah, I think, me, well, yeah. yeah, I don't need the check. I, I would, I would donate it somewhere where it would have the most effect. But, but you think as a matter of uh, just logistics and speed, means testing the checks is a bad idea. I think that's right. I think that, again, just, just because we're talking about, let's say we're talking about like 10% of the population that truly doesn't need it, finding who those 10% are and making it effective, it is not, it is absolutely not worth the delays and the bureaucracy. Look, part of the reason that we have been really slow to respond has been prioritization. I mean, the amount of time that diplomats have had to take and, and, and that Homeland Security has had to take in trying to identify who all the Americans are on cruise ships and getting them back to the United States. American expats stranded abroad. I'm not saying these things aren't important, but they clearly are vastly less important than the responses that we need to make to coordinate internationally and domestically for an effective and big response to this crisis. I mean, there are just so many things that you, we can talk about all of the, the things that matter and would be good to be able to do in an ideal world. We need triage, right? And if we don't get policy triage in very short order, we're going to have uh, epidemiological triage where, where our doctors have to decide that a whole piece of the population doesn't get medical support because they're comparatively unlikely to survive and therefore have less value. I mean, you know, those studies about, you know, you've got the tra trolley coming down the tracks and who do you save? Uh, we don't want to have to make those decisions. Yeah. I mean, you're basically saying when time is of the essence and lives are on the line, blunt force needs to be applied and needs yes. to be applied quickly. So some, some other things that are being debated with respect to the congressional response are bailouts. And I understand that the airline industry is very important. You know, it's, it's a quasi-utility, some people say, and that the airline industry failed. It would have massive effects on the economy. So, you know, it's, it's in some ways, to borrow a phrase from, I guess, the decade before the last decade, uh, too big to fail. But what do you make of the criticism that people have that if you're going to bail out the airline industry there have to be strings attached, including that they do things to make sure that their workers are okay, that when they make a lot of profit, they can't buy back their stock to goose the price of their stock and all sorts of other restrictions. Is that fair or not? No, I have no problem with that. You're getting a bailout from the American people fundamentally. This is going to be on our deficit or either that, or it's going to be uh, taking away from our net worth. I think that you have to imply a greater level of stewardship from the government when you do that, at least until such time as they as they pay it back. And let's keep in mind that you know these bailouts uh, frequently can you, you can make money on bailouts. You remember AIG and the investment made by the U.S. government, the bailout there. I mean that ended up being kind of a win for them, right? And people forgot about the fact that uh, the headline numbers when the economy rebounded, a lot of that money ended up not coming out of the taxpayers. But until such time as they're capable of, of actually making the taxpayers whole, I think that there's no problem with, uh, with significant restrictions on the executive decision-making that these, um, these airlines have to have. And do you think that will come to pass, or are there going to be a core of Republicans who will oppose that? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think because, again, this is a really heavy debate about a lot of money with people that are very ideologically divided and under a fairly strict time gun, not only in terms of the, um, the urgency of the crisis, but also before Congress itself 
goes into recess. And, you know, a lot of these, these are older people. A lot of them have pre-existing health conditions themselves in Senate and House. They are in Washington, D.C., in a social environment. A lot of them really want to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, well, a lot of them are in a, a difficult demographic themselves. That's right. By the way, you know, one, on that front, just one thing to think about as we think about the elections, and I don't want to be morbid about this, but I mean, if the worst comes to pass in terms of the next six months, somebody is going to want to do a demographic study of voters in key swing states and how many are, let's say, in the critical demographic at risk of coronavirus, right? Because, For what purpose? Uh, because that's going to change vote. It could change voting in a meaningful way. Well, we should move to voting by mail, shouldn't we? Absolutely. No, but I'm just talking about like who's actually available to vote. I mean, you know how, you know how. Oh, you're being much more ominous than I realized. Yeah. I mean, you think about how close the election was back in 2016 and you think about what the actual population is going to look like in November in some of those places. I mean, I, I believe me, I'm, I hope that as we all are able to get through this um, in sound mind and body, uh, that is not going to happen. And uh, that is actually going to change uh, uh, the demographic uh, that is most likely to vote. Right. I mean, young people don't vote. Um, older people do. Um, and yes, it's going to first of all, it's going to question of whether we can get to vote by mail and can we do that effectively? And is that going to be challenged? But also, I mean, you know, who's made it to November? Something that is at least worth mentioning. Well, yeah, I pray that you're wrong about that. Are there whole industries other than the obvious, like the airline industry, that you're worried will be forever damaged, like, for example, the restaurant industry? Yeah, I mean, the cruise line industry is clearly going to be damaged in a very serious way. And I, I don't know that there's necessarily going to be the same urgency for bailout, nor should there be, uh, as there is for airlines. And, th and then you just have all of these smaller businesses that involve uh, service workers um, who, I mean, you know, the, the restaurant industry, all sorts of small retail, right? I mean, just general big box retail, because I mean, Amazon and others that are working capably in digital space are just going to clean up in this environment and people aren't, aren't necessarily going to be comfortable going back to stores um, when they're not only um, the, the reality of the crisis means that they can't, but also they then get more comfortable. They've built their accounts, they've done their searches. It's now easier for them to become regular users of digital space. What Do you think all those people are really going to go back to their old buying patterns? The answer is no. Uh, right. I mean, one of the biggest hurdles for a lot of these digital companies are the folks that are comfortable just going retail. Once you've suddenly showed that they can be comfortable doing digital for three months, for six months, a lot of them are going to be out of the retail environment. At least restaurants, people are still going to want once it's safe, people are going to want to go back to restaurants. When it comes to basic retail, bricks and mortar in the United States, I'm not sure it comes back like that. Right. Yeah. Can I ask you sort of a question that will put people's thinking in perspective, you're a smart guy, you analyze risk for a living. That's your bread and butter, that's your profession. And yet we're at a stage now where every day we're like, what the hell is going on? You know, when Tom Hanks got the coronavirus and then they canceled the NBA, things like that were really stunning and jarring to people. Did you anticipate all of that? Was it jarring to you just like it is for ordinary people who go about their lives who are not in this profession? And, and if so, when, when did that happen where you thought, holy cow, was it when you texted me a week ago saying, okay, I'm worried now? And, and why did that happen? As soon as I saw Italy. 
you know, uh, because I mean, the the South Korean explosion, because it was comparatively well handled with lots of tests that were available. And I, I just, again, something I wasn't focusing uh, on how many tests the South Koreans had and could deploy compared to the Europeans. That that felt like, OK, so Taiwan, South Korea and uh, Singapore. Uh, OK, Singapore is comparatively hot, but still South Korea, the temperatures like a lot of the United States, they're able to deploy and respond relatively quickly. You could imagine a much better trajectory for the rest of the West, as it were. As soon as I saw Italy, which and I mean, we're not talking southern Italy, we're talking northern Italy. I go there all the time. It is wealthy. They have a strong healthcare system. They've got great infrastructure. Milano has one of the most effective mayors in the world, who, again, I know uh, personally. As soon as I saw that hitting Lombardi and I saw doctors making decisions of life or death and saying, okay, you're just not going to get any support because we are overwhelmed here, then I'm like, that can easily happen in parts of the United States. At that point is when I sent you that that text. I was like, that, okay, that worries me because now now I know that this is going to be not just contained to big economic damage from China. It's clear to me we were going to have big economic damage in China, larger than was expected. They were lying about some of their numbers, particularly Shanghai and Beijing. Uh, wasn't clear how well they were going to be able to restart if they have secondary outbreaks. And because they make so much for everyone and all of our supply chains are interlinked, that meant to me a more significant economic hit around the world than we had expected. That plus the you know oil war between the Saudis and the Russians pushing prices down below 30 now, that implied pretty significant economic hit this year. And a lot of emerging markets could go into crisis like we've already seen in Argentina and Lebanon. But as soon as I saw Northern Italy this was in a completely different frame for me. And that's, that's when I sent you that note. So any final pieces of advice to people who might be listening? Um, yeah, I think that, um, as I said at the beginning, the institutions in the United States and Europe and Japan are still quite strong. And as we come out of this, they're going to function much the way they have. But I, I do worry about so many people that aren't of means that are not going to be able to get basic services. And the growth in populism that we've seen over decades now has the potential to expand in ways that are much more damaging to our societies on the back of this. You know, feelings of greater class warfare at a time when the Chinese internationally are feeling a lot more confident. I worry that the next year we come out of this in ways that are just a world that we're not going to be as happy about. And that's, uh, that's worth paying a lot of attention to. Otherwise, you know, be close to the people that you care about, but don't, don't actually touch them. <laughs> well, I should, I should point out, as I alluded to before, I'm in my home. I'm in the basement of my home, not in any close proximity to you or to the folks on my team. I hope you're doing okay. You too, man. I miss you. One day soon, we'll get back together. I look forward to it. Thanks, Ian. Ian Bremer, thanks so much. Big virtual hug, Breed. <laughs> right back at you. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated, you never use it. That's exactly the type of security system Simply Safe has spent a decade fighting against. They believe that simple is safer. 
And it's exactly why Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your home 24/7. Order online with the click of a button. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come and disrupt your house, and you don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a 2-year contract. Their 24/7 professional monitoring and emergency dispatch starts at 50 cents a day. That's a deal, considering that Simply Safe was named best overall home security of 2020 by US News and World Report. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com/preet to make sure they know that our show sent you. My guest this week is Ram Emanuel, who served as the mayor of Chicago from 2011 to 2019. He also served in the White House as President Obama's first chief of staff and Bill Clinton's senior advisor and also on Capitol Hill as a congressman from Illinois. After returning to private life, Emanuel joined ABC News as a special contributor and he's a senior advisor at Centerview Partners. Emanuel recently wrote the book The Nation City: Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. It's a deep dive into the priorities and principles guiding mayors across the country, and a manifesto arguing why cities need to step up when the federal government steps back. Emanuel has a reputation as a tough politician with a bit of a mouth. Even President Obama has joked about it, but he's also an idealist, which is something we sorely need right now. Emanuel joins me to talk about why it matters who staffs the president, whether charisma is overrated, how cities are the center of a new urban politics. If Democrats are falling in line behind Joe Biden and the challenge that Americans do need to face right now. Plus I ask him to fill in his own answer to Michelle Obama's timeless phrase, when they go low, we go. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Mayor Rahm Emanuel, thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. So can, can I tell you one quick story indulge me for a moment sure. that I've been wanting to tell you for a long time um <laughs> and that is that uh, you know I have three kids and our youngest child is named Ram R A H M not after you no offense <laughs> it was independently of you but but the reason I mention it is that when you were running for mayor of Chicago my in-laws live in the Chicago area and my wife was out there and she saw these lawn signs that said Ram for mayor and she texts me and says can I grab one of these and I think I think I said no that's a felony <laughs> I think should take someone else's lawn sign. No, you know, felony in Chicago is for a dead person to vote. You can take whatever yard <laughs> sign you want. <laughs> But I did I was I was the US attorney at the time and I thought, you know, members of my family should not be engaging in even misdemeanors. Yeah. And then I went uh. to a wedding and was seated next to somebody who I think was your deputy mayor or a top-level staffer for you. Told that story and three days later we received in the mail our very own Rom for mayor poster which is now framed and on the bedroom wall of our son. So uh, how old is he? He is now 15. Oh, congratulations. So this is some time ago. So Yeah. I mean, I will look in the basement and see if we have any more <laughs> Rom for Mayor coffee cups. Since he's 15, he's on he's the He's probably drinking a lot of coffee. Um although yeah, I, I'm sure. I don't think I don't think at so. At 15, I'm But sure. But you should is. I just wanted you to know as we started off the interview that there is a bit of campaign uh, paraphernalia of yours <laughs> in my house. All right. So you have written a book. Congratulations on the book. It's called The Nation City Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. And ordinarily, I would say, well that's kind of self-serving. Uh you were a mayor, you were mayor of Chicago for two terms. Of course you think mayors are great, but you actually also served obviously at the highest levels in the House of Representatives, at the highest levels of the White House multiple times. 
So you're in some position to, I guess, credit Mayers with being special. And as the subtitle of your book indicates, your thesis basically is Mayers effectively run the world now. How? Let me ask you the easiest question ever, because it's the thesis of your book. Does that mean I get an A? Well, it depends on how you answer. Uh, okay. You'll be All graded right. on a curve, because it's an easy question. Oh, if we're graded on a curve, I'm good. Good. <laughs> um, why is that so? Why, Mayers, why, why are you disillusioned, as you seem to be a little bit, with what you call the nation state or federal government? Why are mayors better? Well, let me say, I think both mayors and the cities and the people that they work with and govern with, so it's both the mayors, but also more importantly, the cities and what's in those cities that make them, quote unquote, a nation and the most effective form of government. Look, I mean, one of the reasons I ran for mayor was having worked by President Obama's side as his first chief of staff, was I could feel the center of gravity moving and moving to local level. And everybody that thinks of progressive policies always looks to Washington. And the truth is, it's happening right there in your backyard in a government that's closer to how you live your life. When you think about where you live, where you work, how you get to work, where your kids go to school, where your family enjoys the amenities of its parks, its libraries, and the neighborhood and the community, those are all services and things that local government does. And you feel closer and more immediate to that government and impacted because you can impact the policies that impact the way you go about your life, where you live, where you work, where you play. And what two things I would say what's changed is cities today, because the federal government has stepped back, are now not only doing those things that it's done in the past, but it's now also doing climate change, income inequality, immigration policy, scientific research, et cetera, things that used to be literally the real estate or the purview of the uh, national government. And the federal government has become dysfunctional. So speaking of dysfunction, here we are recording on Wednesday, March 11th. And this podcast will air at some point in the, in the coming days. But the most important story in the news right now is a crisis relating to the coronavirus. And so here, lots of people would say, and I've said on the show before, and I think I've heard you say, that there's a lot of criticism that's you know rightfully directed towards the president and the administration how do you feel about a crisis like this, where you kind of do need a collective, not just local response, but national response, when the federal government has failed in many ways, including at the time of this recording, not having enough tests, minimizing the problem, not having enough transparency? Is even this an issue that can be solved locally by, by mayors when it's of such national import? First, no. As I say, I think in the book many times, I don't wish that the federal government wasn't there. I want a federal partner, a strong federal partner. No city and no mayor can wait on a federal government to wake up to its responsibilities. I wanted it, but I acknowledge that it wasn't gonna happen. I mean, one of the things I point to as an example, there are others in the book, the city of Chicago, I believe a high school education is not sufficient anymore for the next 50 to 100 years. So we created the first ever free community college for our high school graduates, tuition, books, and transportation. Could we debate it? Endlessly in Washington, yeah. But I don't think I could lose another generation of Chicago citizens on their future. So that's an example of where you're not going to stand by the sidelines anyway, waiting for uh, Godot from the national government. Right. Now, I have been by President Obama's side when we dealt with H1N1, and I've been a mayor when we dealt with Ebola. You need a federal government that sets clear policy, is transparent with the public, 
reassures them on the kind of public health protocols, and then it makes sure that we're coordinating the execution. The federal government needs a good office of public health at the local level. It needs at the local level an office of emergency response because it can't on its own get an inventory of the healthcare workers, the hospitals, the services that are going to be delivered to deal with when the crisis emerges. But what we have seen when you compare H1N1 and the federal government or Ebola to this how important those skill sets of trust, credibility, good management, belief in science, and being forthright with the public of what the protocols are around public health policies. And I think that the president's past and his current enunciations have all undermined what we need at this point. Cities can do certain things to step in, but they can't replace what are the testings, where are the kits, They can't do that. And that's where you need the federal government. And I do think you're going to find out how valuable that deep state is. So I understand your point about the federal government and how the center has shifted. My first question is, why why has it shifted in your mind? Well, so early on in the book, I deal with this anecdote, but I think it's telling. If you thought of kind of Teddy Roosevelt to the Great Society under Larry Johnson as one arc of thinking about the federal government as this incredible effort. About 60 years or 50 years ago in the 60s, our cities are burning, they're falling, you know, people are fleeing, uh, both companies and families to the suburbs. And Lyndon Johnson knows how important cities are to the democratic base. And he comes up with the model cities of which Head Start Early Childhood Education was a piece of that. It was also a piece of the war on poverty. That's kind of the apex. And it was both an ability to deal with education, but also provide cities with some new money and a new investment, and also deal with our social inequity. Fast forward 50 years later, President Obama announces universal, uh, a goal of his is universal full-day pre-K. Cannot get the Congress to take action on it. So he has a White House conference, invites 200 mayors, and says, I can't get this done, but you can. You guys do it. And across the country, Mayors from New York City, Chicago, Boston, San Antonio, Dallas, L.A. are all implementing universal pre-K. And I thought it told the story of what has happened in this time to the federal government. Now, what are the intervening events that went from action to inaction? Saving cities to cities saving Washington. And that, you know, part of this, and I say this as somebody who used to practice these dark arts, (laughs) I think redistricting is a horrible It's polarized, already a polarized political system. I think the role of money in politics, and I say that also as a former fundraiser, I think we have, if you look historically at our country, our political system and structure of a democracy and our economic system of capitalism are somewhat in conflict by principles. Inside those systems are conflicts, and we have faced them before when they become in open conflict, like the Civil War. And then we had a president who had the grace to ask for, you know, malice towards none and charity towards all. We have faced it in the Great Depression when we had a president who said we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And unfortunately, we have a president now who has not made these divisions. They existed, but he is exacerbating them and using those divisions to stoke them for his greater political advantage. How do you define what the divisions are that he's stoking? Well, there's divisions in this country on race. There's divisions in this country on education. There's geographical divisions, cities, suburbs, and rural. There's divisions in this country, as I said, about education. 
Um, and we have further, further balkanized ourselves. I also say in the book, beyond what I talked about in the sense of structural things like redistricting money, I think the decision by the FCC on the fairness doctrine in media was a horrible precedent to further aggravate already some challenges. And one of the things I think about in our politics today, and I've written about this, not in the book, but in other writings, we need leaders who call upon our fellowship, not just upon our followers. And one of the things that we have to work on collectively is reestablishing our fellowship to each other. And I think people know what President Trump's doing, pitting an American against American for his own political advantage is not good for America. I think it's actually one of the strengths that Vice President Joe Biden brings. Uh, I wouldn't call it the most important thing, but we're not going to go another 20 years as a country with this sort of self-antagonism. As President Lincoln once said, a house divided can't stand. And so at some point, we're going to have a leader who calls forth the best of our fellowship. And we all have a role to play in working on that rather than find our fellow citizens as our, quote unquote, not our people we disagree with, but our enemy. That's just the wrong way to look at each other. You know, it's interesting what you just said, because you must know that you have a reputation for being, you know, pretty tough. And, I am a and, middle and child. Hard, and, and hard-edged and able to play hardball politics. But just now you spoke, and in the book from time to time, you speak in somewhat idealistic terms. Do you consider yourself to be an idealist uh, or a pragmatist, or are those things not mutually exclusive? I, yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought those. I think, first of all, we so much kind of try to get the world into a dichotomy or bipolar. I've written two books. They're both on policy, and yet I do practice politics. The dark arts, you said. Well, some of them are dark arts. Some of <laughs> okay. them are good arts, yes. okay? Uh, but I do think this. I used to say to my kids when we would have dinners all together and stuff, mainly for mayors, governors, and presidents, but not also other people. You have to be, a, if you look at a good president, a good governor, a good mayor, you have to be idealistic enough to know why you're doing what you're doing and ruthless enough and tough enough to get them done. You know, President Lincoln, President Roosevelt, both of them, President Kennedy, were unbelievably idealistic, but unbelievably tough politicians. Would you call them ruthless? Have you ever seen what the Kennedys did? I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just, I'm, I'm just asking if you no, use no, that word. I, okay, you don't like the ruthless? No, no, no I don't dislike the word. To get I don't, actually, I don't dislike the word at all. I mean, I no, thought... I mean, but here's the thing. Ruthless in the service of a goal that has a policy implication, um, yes, I would call what sometimes, the, as the Kennedys dealt with certain policies and things to get done, uh, yeah, I, so was President Roosevelt. I mean, I've, I've in my own life referred to benevolent ruthlessness, and I think, there's, I think there's a value there. I think sometimes people were worried about Barack Obama, who you later worked for. They thought maybe he was not ruthless enough during the campaign, and then he showed himself to be that way. Fair? No, he was, uh, look, you never get to the Oval Office once, let alone twice, if you're not tough. It's just not going to happen. Once, let alone twice. And um, I think people made a misperception of both and misread both President Obama and President Clinton. And I think Democrats misread Ronald Reagan, Eisenhower, and President Bush 43. Totally misread them. And so I would say to you is no successful mayor or president or governor is one or the other. They have to have a combination of both to succeed. Listen, I say, I, mean, I think in the book you're referring to, I, I talk about, yeah, I am a partisan Democrat. My best friend in the, one of my best friends in the Congress was a Republican, Ray LaHood. 
He was from downstate Illinois. I was from Chicago. He was a Republican. I was a Democrat. He was a child of a, a Lebanese immigrant, and I was a child of an Israeli immigrant. You couldn't find more things to disagree with. We had a very, very good friendship. And it started, and I say it in the book, we used to fly back to Chicago, and he would try to catch his connection. I, If I had a seat closer to the front than his in the back, and he was trying to connect, I'd give him my seat because— and I would take his seat so he could make the Chicago Peoria connection. That became the basis of a friendship. That friendship became the basis we used to have a dinner every other week, six Republicans, six Democrats, all off the record. And we would just build those friendships and relationships. Now, I was also charged in the next two years to take back the majority. But I also understood winning po- campaigns didn't mean I couldn't establish relationships with people. Did those dinners continue while you had that job? Well, I was a head of the DCCC. Yeah. Absolutely. But did they get more? Did they I get mean, less we may have to bring a food taster <laughs> to the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they thought I for, was there. For you uh, or for yeah. them? Or for yeah, both, both yeah, sides? Both. Yeah. But, you know, to me, I think this, you know, oh, he's very good at, he or she are very good at policy. I mean, the more successful policy advisors to presidents are ones who are sensitive to the political implications. And the more successful political Operators are people that are aware of the policy implications of what they're recommending. I remain fascinated by this idea that idealism is important and wanting to, to accomplish something and having a good vision is important, but you, you need to be ruthless in some ways in the pursuit of that vision. And we mentioned Obama and you mentioned Johnson and Roosevelt and some others. Do you consider Trump to be ruthless in that way? Yeah, I, but he's absent. Ideals. He's absent the other side. No, no. He all he has is Donald Trump. He has nothing about America. I mean, he has no idealism, no vision, and all the ruthlessness on behalf of Donald Trump. I just wish he had some of that for America, not for himself alone. And I do consider the things he did to get elected, the things he's doing to uh, try to position himself. He is that tough without the North Stars that guide you. You know, President Obama, take the health care. Or let me just start with the getting elected. I think it's a, a fact. You know, there is racism in this country. And President Obama not only got elected, got reelected, and he's the first president since Eisenhower, who both in the election and the reelection got above 50%. No other president since, I, since Eisenhower did that. And he did it in the face where I think we obviously have racism. It's an incredible testament to him as a person, him as a candidate, and the campaigns he built and the administration he endeavored. He took on an issue, health care, that since Teddy Roosevelt, we try to get done. And when it was some very, 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 very dark moments, persevered in seeing it through. And so there's a toughness, and people always underestimated his graciousness and his gentleness for a lack of strength. Same way they always thought that Clinton was always a compromiser and would never stand up, and that's when Newt misunderstood when he was willing to take the government shutdown. Newt thought he would fold like a cheap suit over Medicare and Medicaid, and he would not do it. Do you think Bernie Sanders has the kind of ruthlessness we're talking about? I haven't uh, worked with him uh, uh, long enough or close enough to tell you that. How about Joe Biden? Uh, I have seen it uh, with uh, the vice president, but I, I I have seen a. You're focusing all on the ruthlessness. I you know, no, it's because it's sort of important. Um, I think people on the progressive side don't talk about it enough. They they want vision and and they they're not always thinking about the hardball way in which, you know, which is why you have detractors for that reason, but you also have a lot of people who respect you for that reason. You know why that is? Ever since Lyndon Johnson, the Democrats have had a physical aversion to power and using it for a host of reasons because of Vietnam, et cetera. 
and Watergate, and Democrats almost recoil. One of the things I would say that President, beyond the policies, and we could go talk about that, President Clinton, and which is what scared Republicans about President Clinton, was he was comfortable both accumulating power and using that power. And that's what scared Republicans about Bill Clinton. My view is, and I get back to this, you got to be idealistic enough to know why you're doing what you're doing, then tough enough, ruthless enough to get it done. And you can go through things on the New Deal. You can go through things like on Social Security. You can go through the Civil War. You can go through, you know, the Great Society and President Johnson defying his fellow uh, Southerners when he fought for civil rights. There was a toughness, a ruthlessness on behalf of an ideal. And just having that ideal without the practicality and the impulse and the drive of how important this is, you'll never see that ideal become a reality. How do you define power and its use? Is it influence? Is it accomplishment? Is it causing other people who are your opponents to have fear? How do you think about power? Well, uh, it's all of that and more. And that's not a cheap answer because I can't answer it. It's, uh, I think some of it is, you know, how do you perceive Lyndon Johnson? Everybody knew the Johnson treatment where he would just lean in on you, literally take your physical space. And they knew he would be willing to do certain things, both good and bad to you. Now, did he employ that all the time? No. Did he know that you knew that he could? Yes. And that has, that's an element of power. There's also the power of an idea, not just the power of a tactic. And at the certain point in America, after World War II, after the Brown v. versus the Board of Ed, the time had come for civil rights to this country. There was no escaping it. And Johnson was ready to use both the power of the office and the power of the idea of equality to bring it forth. When you think about power, I mean, I guess my, mm-hmm. I have a preliminary question. Do you think about it and have you thought about it as a concept? Do you study it? Do you read Machiavelli? Do you do it by intuition? Do you think politicians should study, you know, the use and misuse of power in and of itself? Well, of course. You know, think about it. I hate using this because we're talking about democracy, political systems, but there's hard power and soft power. And I talk about what mayors have in both hard power and soft power. And let me turn to one about soft power, not in the sense of what we're talking about for legislative or other type of means. I think one of the things that we're going to, this era is going to be remembered for is the deaths of despair, where people have turned, particularly parts of our society, towards opiates, heroin, suicide, and alcohol. And that's part of being alienated, feeling forgotten, lost, unheard, unseen. And mayors have the ability through their soft power with their relationship with places of worship, community groups, not-for-profits, to weave a community around our fellow citizens. And I really do think this is tearing at our soul as a country. This is a manifestation and a byproduct of a whole host of social economic forces. And while we talk about hard power of a Johnson or et cetera, I don't think we should think about lose the sight when at the second inaugural when Lincoln says at the tail end of the Civil War that literally killed 675,000 fellow Americans that we should have malice towards none and charity towards all. What power those words had towards creating a purpose for the country. Dr. King was not a president, but he was a leader of this country. And his powers of having a vision and laying in front of Americans to call forth our Americanness from all of us 
it challenged us. And so there's both hard power doing tough things and there's soft power that call forth different qualities. So I, I think you should study it so you know when you need to use which and when and what skills or tactics not only come with it. But I also would say, you know, at this moment, one of the challenges that I think Americans are yearning for, which is why I think Donald Trump is extremely vulnerable, is that he has, they think, uh, the American public thinks we have big challenges. And we have a president who has turned one American against another. And I think one of the things that Democrats have to offer is this sense of creating fellowship and reestablishing the threads that unite us rather than figuring out which ones divide us. You don't need a genius to identify things that divide us. You need a leader who could identify the things that remind us of our fellowship. And that's what I think we're yearning for. And I think that's an important part of power too. I'm reminded uh, of a conversation I had with a former politician a few weeks ago based on the answer you just gave. And part of what you're talking about is charismatic leadership. And this person was, was positing the following theory, and I wonder what you think of it. He said, look, in Western democracies, it is often the case that to succeed on the progressive side, to get progressives to want to vote for you, you must be, I'll give you a few examples of this, you must be exceedingly charismatic and people fall in love with you. Examples of that are the two presidents you work for, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. An example from the UK is Tony Blair. Meanwhile, on the other side, the conservative side in America, the Republican side, Reagan is not an example of this, but they often elect kind of milquetoast, bland, non-charismatic leaders. Because on the liberal side, this person was theorizing, they really want to fall in love with their politician. Is that is that fair? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Clinton coined that Democrats like to fall in love and Republicans like to fall in line. I think post-Kennedy, we have a real nostalgia, yearning, emotion towards that quality of a person in a leader. I'm not sure I would say that's not true. I think Reagan had a, well, I know Reagan had a charm and a charisma. And post the Depression and war, Roosevelt knew when he picked Eisenhower or whoever he was going to pick because it was between Eisenhower and Marshall. Roosevelt knew whoever that was, if they, if they were successful in the war, that person was presidential timber. And so the real question is not so much party as how much do the qualities of the character answer what the country is yearning for and seeking at that moment. So rather than just say Democrats want charismatic leaders and Republicans want milquetoast leaders, I don't buy that as a partisan split. I think it's Eisenhower in his qualities, his background, his experience, and post the turmoil of both Korea and World War II and the Depression, his grandfatherly image and his kind of presentation of leadership was what the country was yearning at that time. But by the time he was done, they were yearning for Kennedy. The pendulum swings. Yeah. It was interesting that you brought up the Clinton line, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Now this year, so we're recording this on on Wednesday, March 11th, by the time it drops, this pod drops, I suspect, I don't want to get anyone annoyed, I suspect that Joe Biden will be the presumptive Democratic nominee. Uh, he cleaned up on Super Tuesday, he cleaned up yesterday. There's still some more contests to go. It seems this time around, is it fair to say that the Democrats are so united in the interest of beating Donald Trump that they're being as pragmatic as Republicans have been in the past and that they are falling in line rather than falling in love? 80% yes. Here's what I would say to you is, you know, the Republicans' history was the CFO became the CEO, the COO became the CEO, and they kind of had this very corporate structure. And you could say uh, 
Democrats, because of the threat of Donald Trump, have slightly put aside their search for idealism in a very pragmatic approach to electability. And this was not a party that was going to be frivolous, and I'm probably going to get hate mail now when I say this, (laughs) that in 1972 went to George McGovern. This is too important an election with the Senate up, the House up, the White House up, governorships up, state houses up, that the electability and victory was more with, with Trump, and I use that with a double montage, over Donald Trump. It would all, you could say, I am for Medicare for all, but I'm voting for Joe Biden, that there would be things that you're willing to forgive to get to a yes. So let's say Biden is the nominee and his opponent, as we all know, is ruthless and practices a lot of different behaviors. Um, I don't know if you could call them dark arts or, you know, lying arts. I wouldn't use the word arts (laughs) with him. That's an insult to arts. It's an insult to arts. As a former ballet dancer. What's your advice to the Biden campaign in a general election? So I've asked this question of of a variety of other people, and I won't tell you what their answers are, but how how do you complete the sentence made famous by Michelle Obama? When they go low, we go. Well, you know, my view is, look, uh, one of the things I would be very clear, I wouldn't let a single negative charge. This comes from Bill Clinton. After Michael Dukakis, Walter Mondale, not a single negative hit, negative charge goes unanswered. And re- what we I want to be clear is, I would say two things. One, we got to make sure Donald Trump has a rendezvous with his record. And if you look at what's happening in the primary, you look at what happened in 2018, you look at what happened in 2019 in Kentucky, Louisiana, Virginia, Pennsylvania, et cetera, it's clear the country doesn't want to uh, vote for Donald Trump's policies. They don't want to vote for him. 55% of the country is open to actually turning the page. And we have to both offer them a vision of tomorrow and make sure that it's him and his record that's on a referendum on. And it is but implicitly. He is going to try to turn it around and make you a referendum on you and your record. And we can't give in to that. Second is I would also work uh, the referees here. I think the press did a horrendous job on the emails in 2016. When you look at the Shorstein Harvard report, it's clear the amount of time and energy spent around emails have amounted to a hill of beans, distorted the political landscape. And they have a job to be fair and level. And third, they're going to go low. When it requires to meet them where they are, great. And when it requires us to go high, Great. I'm all for which one serves the interest of winning. Sometimes you meet them right where they are and beat the living crap out of them. And sometimes where they are provides you the opportunity to go above them. There's no one tool in the toolbox. You're going to use all your tools. I've noted that we've been talking for a while and you haven't cursed once. <laughs> Being respectful of, of my audience who's scatological Let me preferences say this. you don't okay, know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm comfortable <laughs> With four-letter words, okay? <laughs> I, I know I would that. Like I was going to ask no, wait you about that. No, you asked me a question, so let me ask. <laughs> okay. Number one, all the scientific research shows that those of us that swear with some frequency have better mental health than those of you that repress it. Number two. That's bullshit. Okay, good. That's your radio show, <laughs> not mine. So I'll get two funny stories. One, I think you would agree that I've appeared uh, as a spokesman both as a mayor, a chief of staff, and a member of Congress. Yes. Never once, on both not only on the floor of the House— on Sunday shows or any other shows or at any other press conference. Have I ever sworn, ever, in my public role? 
Why are you being ever. so de- why are you being so defensive? I'm not being defensive. I'm proving a <laughs> okay. a misperception. I do like I don't ever do it in public. Now number three, if you're more comfortable, I'm more than willing to swear at you. <laughs> I don't mind. Would you, you swear like at me to me. do that? Don't swear yeah, at I'm me. More, I'm more than willing to swear me. at you. Now here's the other thing. So my wife's family is Republican. They live in a suburb of Cleveland. You know, I got an ethnic Jewish family. Let's just say they're not, okay? <laughs> right. I'm the first and only Ram, they've, Israel Emanuel, they've ever met in their life. So I used to get done with the, uh, when I was working for either President Clinton or President Obama, then I would get done with the Sunday show and they would go, Mary, my mother-in-law would call and say, oh, you did so well. I said, oh, Mary, I didn't do well. You were just happy for 15 minutes. You were worried that at the country club, they were going to say, <laughs> why, did, why did your son-in-law swear? You're just, thank God I got through another 15 minutes without an F-bomb or something like that. So, Going back to, the, to how Biden should campaign, if they go low and they will, and they'll attack Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, should Joe Biden go after the Trump kids? Well... Here's my view. There's, it doesn't have to only be Joe. All of us play a role. And that is, why is it only on Joe Biden? Why is it, you know, we're going to, we're going to, de- if you're going to sit there and disperse the character of a family, of a child, uh, why is it only on Joe? Why don't all of us have a role to call out the president? Now, again, I want to say to you is, I'm for whatever works. There are some charges that require you ignoring them or going high, and there's certain charges that you go right where they are and meet them and scare the living crap out of them. And the idea that you're going to do one or the other is a misnomer how campaigns happen. But all of them are in service of a goal of stating that we're going to replace this division, this chaos, this conflict, this constant conflict of making our politics, our version of the war games into something that's better about us and making sure that we don't get distracted from America's challenges by uh, his conflict but we start addressing what this is. You know, President Clinton, in the worst moments of New Hampshire primary in 92, said, the hits on me are nothing like the hits your kids are going to take if we don't turn this country around. And I would use that as my North Star here, which is whatever they throw at Joe, say this is an attempt to make sure you're distracted from dealing with what are the big challenges facing you and your family and your children. And people will do a lot to the... I actually think one of the things that big things that are driving our politics today, because we are in the middle of a middle-class revolt, not a poor person's populist revolt, is this is the first generation that thinks that their kid's future is going to be less well-off than theirs. And that is driving a lot of the angst and anxiety. And we have to take his desire and attempt to turn one American against the other and use it to our advantage politically. And I'm not naive by politics about how to give people an alternative of what this country can be and has been. What was a tougher job for you, chief of staff to a president or mayor of the city of Chicago? Uh, look, I think that uh, here's what I here, let me reverse the uh, let me try to answer it this way. The mayorship offered highs that I'd never experienced in any other part of my job anywhere and lows that I also never experienced. So it was at one level the most rewarding in doing politics and public policy and it was the most tearing at your soul. I used to joke that the White House was family friendly to the first family and everybody <laughs> else got screwed. Uh, but, you know, I'll give you this. When I created the Chicago Star Scholarship, which is a free community college for kids in Chicago, all you had to do was get a B average and we gave it to you. We also gave it to kids that went to parochial schools. 
as long as they were city residents, poor, they got to be at a parochial school. They could go to uh, one of our community colleges, mainly set up for though public school. And when I we would do this announce, you know, Preet is going to become a Chicago star, and the family would come, and we do these what we call these ribbon or cords. And the joy in a parent's eyes that you allowed them to be the parent they want to be, to give their kids a chance in an education. You know, at a book event two weeks ago, a mother came up with her son. He was both a star student and now is a star plus. He's going to Columbia here in Chicago for photography for his junior and senior year. And she just came and said, I wanted to come say thank you because I could, I can see my son fulfill his dreams and it doesn't burden me to do that. And the joy in her, and she wanted to, it was a cold Friday night and she came. That is so emotionally and professionally rewarding. Can I reinterpret your answer then to mean that the fact that you had that kind of gratification as mayor made that job in some ways a little less difficult than the more thankless job of being chief of staff to a president? Well, you said, th- you said difficult, thankless as well. You know, on the other hand, I have been at the side of a hospital bed with a pe- mother and a grandmother of a young man who went to a basketball park district facility and a young kid brought a gun. He was going to be going for, to a freshman year of high school and was shot in the leg. And, you know, just all I have to offer is a shoulder. And so it tears at you and it rewards you. And so I'm lucky that President Obama picked me as his chief of staff and found uh, that thought I could help, et cetera. Proud of what I did by his side on, on his agenda. I loved being mayor in a way that I found a reward out of it that I could not as either chief of staff, congressman. But I also got to tell you, it can be pretty lonely too. How important is the job of chief of staff to a president? And the reason I ask is because the <laughs> next question is going to be, what do you think of the selection of Mark Meadows and how will that change, if anything, the presidency? Um, two things, Kennedy and Carter, bizarrely, both try to do uh, the job of chief of staff differently, meaning not have one, be their own chief of staff, or and both ended up they couldn't do it, and they ended up picking a chief of staff who was empowered to be chief of staff. You could say in Carter's point, it came too late in his presidency with, with Jack Watson after Hamilton Carter. So that would suggest it's very uh, important. Yes. The president cannot be his or her own chief of staff. It's it's essential to the a well-functioning White House. There's a funny anecdote. So one day, I don't know, we, in one of our wrap-up sessions, President Obama was asking about some position in the Commerce Department. It's like number fifth in the ring or something like that. And I said, I'm lo- you know, we're looking at so-and-so. We'll have that, dis- you know, I'll get you the name tomorrow. And he was kept going. I said, look, Mr. President, one of us will be chief of staff. One of us will be president. You pick which job you want, and I'll take the <laughs> other one, okay? <laughs> but, you know, but uh, that's all a joke. He was per- he was great to work with, et cetera. I thought it was a joke. But the, the thing is, it's essential to the success of a uh, presidency. Uh, Mark Meadows, I think a president, when you look at him, there are different stages of their presidency. I just take my example. I, given I came from Congress, I knew President Obama personally. I'd help elect the majority in both 06 and 08 in the House. And I'd been to the White House, which was not true about the President Obama or his team before. I brought certain skill sets that would not have been as valuable into the fourth year or fifth year of his presidency. And so I think chiefs of staffs are somewhat like a piano accord. You got to think about, do they serve that moment in the president's time? I am not sure going into the reelection, given that Mark Meadows has never been in the White House, 
given he doesn't even know where the bathroom is, given his election has been in a Republican primary in a part of North Carolina, is fully up to speed with coordinating a government and a campaign in the intersection of those efforts when you're still learning how to work the tools of a government. I'm not sure that's the choice I would have made at this moment in time. But let me say this. Thank God the president picked Mark Meadows. <laughs> Interesting. That's probably going to be, unfortunately, the headline uh, of this entire interview. Um, one, of, one of many, and, and the lack of cursing. Going back to your book for a second. Yeah, that would be helpful. We're trying to produce sales here. We talked a lot about your book and a lot of I'm these things. Joking. Hey, man, you're a little sensitive. No. Um, <laughs> so so let, me, let me put you on the spot for a second. You have a lot of praise for other folks, yeah. uh, other mayors, including one Eric Garcetti, mayor of Los yeah. Angeles. Are you in any way disappointed he didn't throw in his hat for the presidency? Yeah, Eric knows that. I think, look, I think, I think Eric had a lot to offer. Uh, I think he's been a, you know, he's got a challenge on homelessness, but all of us have challenges. And, but I think he would have had a lot to offer to this field at the time. But, you know, I say a lot of nice things about Mitch Lander and he didn't run. And I think he would have offered a lot to this field. How many, how many nice things do you say about Bill de Blasio? I, I think his pre-K piece was a very uh, strong and good uh, policy that kick-started a lot of things nationally. Um, so I'll just leave it there. Were you surprised by how well Mayor Pete Buttigieg did? And do you attribute any of that to these general theories you have about mayors? I think that uh, he did very, very well. He has clearly got a future. I said this before, but I'll repeat it. I think when you, you know, he did, he won Iowa. He didn't get the normal bounce he got out of Iowa because of technical system breakdowns. He had a good debate, not a great debate, and yet he almost beat Sanders in New Hampshire. And the reason I think that happened is Biden runs this ad saying, I've dealt with healthcare. I dealt with Iran. I dealt with, you know, da, da, da. This guy, cobblestone streetlights and, you know, New Hampshire voters were, well, that sounds pretty good. I'll go for the streetlights and the cobblestones. And I actually think his mayoralty became an asset. I think Biden thought this attack was going to work. And if anything, it underscored what people liked about Mayor Pete. He understood the government that touches our lives and that we rely on to go about our lives. Do you think cities in this country that are not really romanticized in our politics, right, do they need to have better PR? Well, look, you have a president who's attacking cities right now and using them as his political punching bag. If you look at, I don't mean to be technical, but if you look at the GDP of this country, the growth of this country, where it's growing, it's happening in cities. And that's the, the premise of the book. I think a lot of people clearly by foot traffic, cities are having a renaissance at this point. Uh, every city has, a pro as I write in the book, there's a promise to that city and there's a peril. And leadership of mayors is about how do they double down on their strengths and then address those weaknesses so they don't become overwhelming. But when you think about the economic, intellectual, and cultural energy of the world economy, I'm using this not numerically correct, about 100 cities in the world drive the economic, intellectual, and cultural energy of the world economy. They're pushing where the arts are. They're pushing uh, the creative culture that they have in their city. They're pushing the policy boundaries of dealing with the educational divide. They're pushing the economic uh, kind of culture and environment and atmosphere that allow us to have the type of entrepreneurs we are. And so I think the cities are at the center. And part of this book is not only to look at it from a political science standpoint, but then to also try to understand what this new urban politics is.
Was policing and, and dealing with crime issues in Chicago the biggest challenge of your job? I say it in the, you know, it was both, you know, I, yes, that's the, full, the headline. Um, you say policing. So look, one of the things is we constantly reduce public safety down to policing. It's a big component. Then there's the rest of the criminal justice system. Then it's replacing despair with hope and opportunity. There's a educational component to this. There's a neighborhood uplift component to this. There's a gun safety piece to this. And what we have to really get to is understanding that to deal with the issue of public safety, police provide a component of safety that allows you to then work on all the other things that are essential for the sense of community. And if you don't have opportunity, if you don't have, I mean, I've used this story before, which in Chicago is no different than New York or Boston or any of the other city. You know, a child walking past a bunch of closed, shuttered neighborhood coffee shops, other types of retail, internalize that into themselves. And a child walking by new sidewalk with coffee shops, with residents in it and community residents in there and stores opening where help wanted signs exist and lights are on and not gated and dark and closed. They internalize that. And public safety is a component of creating the environment that's essential for that type of local economy and that type of a community to come together and be created. Um, so police are a piece of it. Gun legislation is a piece of it. A trustworthy criminal justice system is a piece of it. Investments in neighborhoods that have been left behind is a component of it. An educational system that doesn't become a pipeline to jail, but a pipeline to the job and the economy is a piece of it. So there's a lot of things that go into it. Uh, for me, it was one of the hardest things I worked on, but I do see the, you know, I've written about this in both in my book and other places, I, a different way of thinking of the public policy approach of policing and nature. I think if we're on the road to reform, there's no getting off of it, no matter what Donald Trump does in his justice department. And the FOP's argument that, you know, every reform is a bad idea. It's not viable. But I think if you're going to succeed that, succeed in that reform and succeed at public safety simultaneously, because one of the hardest things to do is to both change a culture while you're pursuing a policy or executing on a program. It's better to do the reforms with your police rather than to your police. And then there are watershed moments that have happened in other cities. And you write about it in the book, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the shooting of, a, of an African-American teenager named Laquan McDonald. Yeah. Before Laquan McDonald, I was first and only city that ever paid reparations for police actions. It's called the Burge case. Never been done by another city. It happened way before I was mayor because I thought it was important to bring closure. First city also to ask the ACLU to voluntarily come in and analyze what we were doing with a federal judge oversight into making sure that there was our policing was done appropriately. I thought we had dealt with the issue. The depth of the distrust was deeper than I appreciated. And once that happened, I then went in front of the full city and the full city council and dealt with issues and spoke about issues that the six prior reforms over the last hundred years that Chicago attempted, no mayor's ever said. I dealt with the code of silence. I addressed it. I dealt with the notion that if parts of our city, we uh, children are taught to keep two hands on a steering wheel and other kids are not, tells you how much distrust there is, things that have never been said. But I think we're on the road to reform. I think we've also, when Superintendent Johnson and I 
We did so many uh, what I call focus groups with community residents, police officers, and then community and police together. We came up with, I think, the right, not only set of policies, but the right outlook to do it, work on this together and bringing reform with our police, not to them. There was no doubt that we were never going back or sliding back, but bringing them along because it's one thing to put policies in place, but you also want to then create a culture that is conducive to that change. And the real thing when you're making changes, are you doing it where people see change as a friend or as a foe? And I used to always say to President Obama, people hate the status quo. They're not too excited by change either. <laughs> and so that's the hard I mean, part. It depends of, uh, on when. It depends on, yeah. on what the status quo is. Okay. Do you have any advice for Joe Biden if he's a nominee as to who he should pick <laughs> to be the vice president? If I have advice, I'm going to give it to him. Any, any categories? Any sort of general principles? Remember what President Clinton always said. Yeah. Don't stop thinking of tomorrow. <laughs> Elections are about the future, not the past. Mayor Rahm Emanuel, the book is The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. Thanks thanks so much for giving your time. Thank, thank you. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus with Rahm Emanuel and get the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ram Emanuel. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to stay tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the Cafe team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.